are listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Long-Term Cure Pharmacy Podcast, where you're going to have way more fun than staring at the sun for 30 minutes with binoculars. Welcome back, everyone. This is our official first episode where we are going to be talking about antibiotic or antimicrobial stewardship. So we're glad that you found your way back Um, to get this going. I think, uh, uh, Tamara, I've got a a quick question for you. Um, Did did you happen to hear (laughs) anyone say it with a straight face? Did you happen to hear about the mushroom at the party? No. What about him? Yeah, he's a he's a fun guy. (laughs) <laughs> wow absolutely tragic well that's how we're starting the podcast off huh? oh man starting it out with golden <laughs> jokes here today um but yeah it's so all kidding aside Tamara and I were laughing before we got on here because she like literally when did you tell me that joke like last week and I I cannot stop laughing about it and it's not it's not because it's like amazing no offense to Tamara but it's because Literally, I just never like who says, did you hear about a mushroom at the party? <laughs> like, that's not something that <laughs> most people have in their vocabulary or even sentence structure. So anyways, moving past that tragic joke, we are excited that you're here today. And uh, in true form, we're going to keep this real. We're going to make this fun. And we're going to talk to you guys about uh, some exciting stuff. We found a recent article, right, Tamara, that we wanted to to share with everybody. Yeah, so the World Health Organization in June of 2023 published its first global research agenda, and it outlined 40 research priorities on antimicrobial antimicrobial resistance. And as we all know, you know, antimicrobial resistance causes infections to be harder to treat. It increases the risk of spread, severe illness, death. And so it's it's very important that this is addressed. The article went on to say that antimicrobial resistance is one of the top global public health threats facing humanity and was associated with the death of close to 5 million people globally in 2019, which I thought was astonishing. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And so just a couple things. Uh, first off, I would love to challenge people to say antimicrobial resistance like five times fast because it's a, quite a tongue twister. <laughs> but then I can't secondly, even do it once. I can't even, I can barely do it. I, I practiced, well, I muted myself the entire time you were talking, practicing antimicrobial resistance, which, <laughs> by the way, if we do post the videos from these, you should check it out because right now I'm on a beach somewhere with a virtual background. Tamara is in a virtual blurred car. It's wonderful. Uh <laughs> Weird. Uh, the thing Luke. is, in the summertime, I don't have an office because all my kids are home, you know, from school. And so I thought I was being so smart. I'm like, I'll sit in my car and then I'll just blur the background so Scott can't tell. And so I said, can you guess, Ram? Yeah, you're in your car. <laughs> Dang it. I thought the blur background probably, was going to help me out. I should have probably taken a hint that when you ask, can you guess where <laughs> I am? I should just lied and be like, no, no, a library? I don't know. Anyways, um. Back to that, you know, the numbers on that, Tamara, I think are, and for you guys listening in, are, are probably incredible. I'm wanting to say, and this is not to um, like set a negative tone or anything like that, but I'm wanting to say that since 2020, like June 3rd or something like that to current, 
there's been about like 1.2 million deaths in the U.S. for COVID-19. So the fact that, you know, you're looking at in 2019, close to 5 million people that passed away due to antimicrobial uh, resistance is, is pretty scary when you think about it. Yeah, I don't think we realize it on a day-to-day basis because no. you know, normally we're getting treated for something simple, a sinus infection or an ear infection or something like that. But this is serious. I just had, you know, in the last quarter here, a meropenem resistant pseudomonas in one of my nursing homes. And so I'm seeing it more and more, these resistant organisms, and it is a threat and you certainly need to do something about it. Yeah, I think, you know, for our setting of long-term care for senior care, uh, it's a perfect um, setting, I guess, is the best way to put this for this to become a reality for this uh, antibiotic and resistant organisms to uh, to come about. I mean, it's it's close proximity. There's a lot of people in, in one place. It can spread rather quickly. And so we've seen this, I know, in our uh, our settings and the people that we're servicing have seen it in their homes and it's it's unfortunate because it's really hard obviously to try to control and and get in front of um you know what we're talking about on this episode is obviously we're not going to go into the history of antibiotic stewardship or antimicrobial stewardship or anything like that we want to tackle more of the you know real world kind of feel to antibiotic stewardship i think Everybody knows about it by this point in time. If you if you don't, I mean, any setting that you're in, even if you're listening to this, you're not in senior care. Uh, I I mean, CDC has got a guide for you somewhere. You know, if you're in acute care, hospital, uh, senior care, whatever. And so I I think there's plenty of material out there for you guys to go and and research um, to find out more about the backbones to what it is. But I think most pharmacists listening in, and if you're with a facility uh, listening in on this, you're probably wondering, well, what can I do to try to get in front of this? What can I do to move the needle and make an impact? Because I think most of us on here probably feel that way. I mean, am I right, Tamara? I feel, you know, that that's kind yeah. of the case. Yeah, certainly. And, and some pharmacists are in a, in a great position to make a difference for antimicrobial resistance to help out our facilities to help out you know worldwide just by doing our small part in our facilities and i'll be honest and tell you in my facilities my involvement varies in some facilities i'm very involved and i'm doing antibiograms and i'm making you know duration cap limits for uncomplicated utis or reviewing every culture, uh, renal dosing every antibiotic and things like that. And then in other facilities, my involvement is a lot less, maybe just some retrospective reviews. But it, it is a little bit tricky because the staff in our skilled nursing facilities are, you know, largely uh, working with short staff or a, a large load. And so we don't want to come up with projects that increase their workload because they already have so much. But we do want to, you know, have some ideas of projects that we could do that would make a significant difference that would help out in this regard and something that's manageable for everyone involved, both us and nursing and whoever else might be involved in this antimicrobial stewardship program. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You know, I, in my experience as well, it, it does vary uh, depending on each setting that you're in. I, I don't think, and, and probably most of you listening in would attest to this, that there's a, a cookie cutter approach to this thing. Uh, in fact, you know, whenever you read the statistics 
of long-term care, which are rather daunting when you listen to some of these, like, for example, you know, 70 or 80% of the population long-term care will receive an antibiotic course each given year. That's in the millions then, if that's the case. And then of those up to 70, 70% or more are considered inappropriate. I mean, to Tamara's point, you know, we are in uh, an environment where we can make a huge impact from not only an education, but also process improvement and getting in front of those things. And I think what's hard is, is, you know, things like fluoroquinolones, which are not recommended frontline. Uh, you're probably listening in on this and going, I mean, I saw a fluoroquinolone today when I was reviewing the charts, right? And, um, you know, those haven't been really recommended since gosh, probably 2018, or maybe even a little bit before that when they uh, FDA released something about aortic ruptures. And, uh, you know, so it's hard to say like, there's a cookie cutter approach to this stuff. Because every home is going to be in a different place, every home is going to have different prescribing habits that are being uh, done within that facility. And so we as a consultant pharmacist and uh, if you're listening in from the nursing home, you on the nursing home side have this tall order to take all this junk that CDC has thrown our way and CMS has thrown our way and and say, what in the world do we do with this and how do we make you know, a difference? All right, guys, we have Dr. Deborah Melito with us here, and we are so excited to have her. She is the Director of Consultant and Clinical Services and the Chief Antimicrobial Stewardship Officer at Diamond Pharmacy Services, and also the President-Elect at ASCP. So welcome, Deborah. Thank you for joining us. And if you could, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, Tamara. Uh, I'm so happy to be here today. Um, as you stated, I'm the Director of Clinical and Consultant Services for our long-term care division at Diamond Pharmacy Services. We're located in Indiana, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm also the Chief Antimicrobial Stewardship Officer, and I'm the Vaccine and Therapeutics Coordinator. And I became that, that back when COVID started. And uh, I've always uh, stated that that was by far the hardest thing I had to do was to operationalize our COVID vaccine program. But as an immunizer, it became the most gratifying thing that I've ever done in my pharmacy career. Uh, also, um, from a national perspective of ASCP, you mentioned that I'm the president-elect. I'm very honored to be voted into that position. Uh, but I'm also the chair of the Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention and Control Committee at that level. Yeah, Scott and I joke around that um, you're probably ready to kick us both off at this point because we haven't been huge contributors yet, but we're going to be. We're we're promising you we're going to be. <laughs> Everyone has a role to play. Whether minor or major in our case, one or the other, we're, we're there. Well, Deborah, you know, thanks again for being here. Um, we're talking, obviously, about antimicrobial stewardship and antibiotic stewardship and uh, coming up on our discussion with you, we've uh, done a little bit of an intro and background on it, as well as just talking about the fact that I think many people probably just feel somewhat frustrated maybe at times, or maybe they just feel like they want to make a bigger impact and a bigger difference when it comes to antibiotic stewardship. So we are excited to hear your response to this question, and I think it's one that the listeners really want to know. And that is, if you're sitting there as a consultant pharmacist listening in on this, or as a nursing home facility, what are some tangible items? What are some things that 
uh, you can do uh, that will make a bigger impact when it comes to antibiotic stewardship? Okay, so I think we have to go back to basics. And what I utilized over and over again, starting about six years ago, was these uh, CDC's uh, seven core elements for an effective antibiotic stewardship program in a nursing facility. Now they use the word antibiotic, but my word is antimicrobial because I think that is more inclusive. It covers antifungals, antivirals, uh, including antibiotics to name a few. So uh, that's the term I will use, although the uh, booklet itself says antibiotic. Accompanying that booklet, is a checklist that I find invaluable. So to give you some examples of what you can find um, in that program. So there are seven core elements, as I stated, uh, starting with uh, accountability, drug expertise, leadership, tracking, monitoring, to name a few. So if you look at leadership, the checklist that accompanies this will say things like, does your director of nursing have antibiotic stewardship duties listed under their job description? It's a yes, no. They're always yes, no questions. Or does your medical director have antibiotic stewardship activities in their job description? Now, that may seem very simple, right? But it's so important that those key players know what you're talking about so that you can have a more effective antibiotic stewardship program. Under drug expertise, that pretty much covers all the pharmacists that are listening to this podcast. Uh, we're the ones that you know have been trained uh, in, in all things as it relates to medication. So we are available, we should make ourselves available to do educational um, opportunity, give educational opportunities to all the different providers uh, from the medical director to the attendings to the NHAs. You know, I always say everywhere, everywhere between the NHA and the CNA and what's in between to make sure you capture everyone. Um, and so um, some of the other um, items on this checklist are, you know, what are you doing? Like, what are your action items? And that can be somewhat daunting to the facilities when you're first showing them this. But I, I typically will say, let's pick one initiative get good at it, and then we'll add on, right? Rather than trying to fix everything at one time. So uh, one of the areas that I recommend is to make sure that every antimicrobial order has an appropriate diagnosis. And I'm, I'm talking not just about orals and IVs. I'm talking ophthalmics, otics, Topicals, so important. We miss those all the time. That we have Nystatin powders under the bilateral breasts every shift for six months. And so at some point, you know, early on, that needs to be reassessed for either effectiveness or not, not effective. So I think that asking for appropriate diagnoses by looking at a report at least weekly, we should not be waiting for a monthly medication regimen reviews. That's not timely. So we should be looking at that at least on a weekly basis. And then the second uh, item that I, I recommend is to make sure that every antimicrobial order has a discontinuation date. And I think if you do that for those two items, you're well on your way 
to helping with, you know, having an, uh, an effective antibiotic stewardship program. So this checklist, we need to do it, you know, a baseline. And then uh, if someone's just starting with this, then I would say quarterly, you should be looking at it. But once you get a lot of the questions as yeses instead of noes, then maybe every six months and then maybe annually. And when you're looking at that checklist, do you do that on your own time? Do you sit with your antibiotic stewardship committee and go through the checklist? Is it with the DON or how? what does that look like? So it's a little bit of both, Tamara. I, I found uh, talking to the DON, the NHA, the medical director, and the infection preventionists are most effective. And, and then they can take it back to staff and, you know, talk about what they need to, to work on. So um, the other item that I find effective for consultant pharmacists or other pharmacists would be the antibiotic toolkit that the American Society of Consultant Pharmacists has. Uh, we revise it annually, and uh, you can get it in a digital format or um, hard copy, but uh, people have really enjoyed uh, having that toolkit. It covers just about everything related to antimicrobials, immunizations, and infection prevention and control. Those are great resources. Uh, thank you for that. One question I have is when you say every antibiotic or antimicrobial needs an end date, what about um, patients on UTI prophylaxis long-term? When, when you think about an end date for those, this is something that's been brought up to me you know, quite a bit this year with the new guidelines. What is an appropriate duration for prophylaxis? At what point do we consider discontinuing it? And as consultants, how often should we be leaving notes to review the duration of use? So I find most of those orders to come from uh, a specialist. And um, the downside of that is that once the resident gets back to the facility, to the nursing facility, it's rare that they would go back out to see that specialist. So I, I sometimes get pushed back uh, with an answer to a comment that I might write about discontinuing, you know, prophylactic um, antimicrobial um, needs to be seen by, you know, nephrology or, or whatnot, or urology. So um, I think we all know as pharmacists that it's not recommended to give an antimicrobials prophylactically. Um, you'll find that if someone's been getting nitrofurantoin, for example, for UTI prophylaxis for a couple months, and then they actually get a UTI, they're going to be resistant to nitrofurantoin nine times out of 10. So um, we're setting our, our residents up for antimicrobial resistance and worse. So um, it's not even recommended to use antimicrobials for UTI prophylaxis any longer. You know, we still see that. Uh, I know in our uh, our customers that we're servicing, and Deborah, I'm sure you're in the same boat too, and Tamara, we're still seeing that quite a bit in spite of it not being what is recommended. You know, we're still seeing a lot of UTI prophylactic medication. And you're right. Every time I look at a CNS, it, they're, they're resistant to it. Um, and so I think that's a really valid point. I've been taking notes like I've been in class over here. I mean, I've got a whole <laughs> list of these things. And for you guys listening on the podcast, hopefully you're doing the same thing. If you're driving, I don't recommend that. But if you're if you're sitting there listening to this, and I do recommend that, there's so many things there. And I like how you talked about the appropriate diagnoses for things like 
Nystatin and eye drops and the things that often fall under the radar for us, even as consultant pharmacists, and that sounds terrible, but they do, they fall under the radar because we go, oh, well, there's just Nystatin powder or whatever. And I think that's really good to not only establish a an appropriate diagnosis, because oftentimes they don't have that, and then also a discontinuation date for antibiotics, which unfortunately, I think everybody listening in and, and probably all three of us on here have seen where if we don't challenge that, sometimes antibiotics go for weeks and weeks and weeks past when they were supposed to really be stopped because they came out of the hospital without a stop date or something happened and they just continue that. So I love these thoughts. I absolutely love the thoughts that you brought up. Yeah, these are really great. One story I was telling Scott before we got on today was this winter I had a situation come up. There was a gentleman at one of the facilities I consult for that was on prophylaxis for UTIs ended up getting a UTI, the culture came back resistant to everything in the facility's e-kit. And the problem was we got a huge snowstorm. This is a rural facility and the interstate was closed. And so the director of nurse nursing called me and said, I don't know what to do. And, you know, we reviewed the e-kit, we reviewed the culture. There was nothing that could treat his UTI. So he ended up having to wait for over 24 hours for treatment because he was resistant to everything and we were just not able to get it to him. So that was a scary situation, you know, when it came to, to resistance. But the next question that we had for you is um, if you could maybe just talk a little bit about resistance patterns in the U.S. and some priority pathogens that we're looking at right now. Yeah, sure. So um, CDC releases an antibiotic resistance chart periodically. The latest one that I've seen is 2019, and they categorize the resistant uh, organisms as urgent, serious, concerning, and then being on the watch list. So the ones um, that are urgent, uh, the first one that I want to talk about is Candida auris, and Candida auris is rearing its ugly head in the United States. It didn't come to us till like 2016, but it's been around uh, in other countries, like in 2009 and, and even a little bit before that. So it's it's one of those uh, fungal infections that's very difficult to treat. Uh, a lot of PN resistance to the typical antifungals that you would use. Uh, I'm actually uh, going to be doing three presentations on the stewardship of Candida auris uh, in the near future. And um, it's very interesting. I keep reading more and more about it. And you know, I'm learning a lot as, as I go along too, but it's something that I think we all need to be aware of before it happens in our facilities, because you have to be ready for this. Um, other urgent type of uh, organisms would be um, carbapenem resistant Acinetobacter, and Clostridioides uh, difficile that we're pretty much familiar with. Um, and then drug-resistant Neisseria gonorrhea, to name a few, that's not all-inclusive, but just to give you an idea. As far as uh, serious goes, it's, it's two that we know, uh, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, and of course, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. Under um, concerning, we have erythromycin-resistant strep, and we have um, group A strep that both are becoming resistant. And on the watch list, we have drug-resistant Bordadella pertussis. So Candida auris didn't even show up on this last 
in, before 2019, it didn't even show up and then it popped to urgent. So, um, you know, it's something that we really have to keep an eye on when it comes to um, what the CDC is reporting as an antibiotic resistance. That's fantastic information. And, uh, you know, I think uh, we were talking a little bit about this earlier that, uh, and everyone sitting here as well as probably those listening in have seen in their facilities that they're servicing some of these nasty bugs that are that are popping up and sometimes things that uh, we've never seen before or uh, things that you know really are quite challenging and I like how you said Deborah that we need to be very careful and, and, be, and very considerate of these because when this uh, hits a facility that we're servicing uh, it, it's not something like we just throw a medication at it and and we're good I mean there's a lot of infection control issues there's a lot of uh, cleaning concerns, uh, patient care concerns that go into this that really do affect the day-to-day -day of that facility, especially with something uh, like one of these that we just mentioned. You know, I think switching gears a little bit here, and obviously everybody's talked about COVID probably till we're sick of talking about COVID, but we've talked about COVID. And this year, I know the FDA just released that they're going to be changing up what they want Moderna, Pfizer, all the groups out there that are making vaccines for COVID uh, to be. So I wanted to ask you on that. What's the re most recent COVID vaccine update that we're looking at for this, this season? So I think there are, are two important um, calls that you need to be on to understand the background of how we get the recommendations that we get. One is the FDA VRPAC call, which is the Vaccines and Related Biologic Products Advisory Committee to the FDA. And then we have the CDC, ACIP, which is the Advisory Committee of Immunization Practices. So if you can you know, have any time to spend on the FDA calls, that's going to talk about the safety and efficacy of all products, vaccines and biologics, of course. But then when you get to the CDC, ACIP, they're the ones that are going to recommend to which populations get which vaccines. So understanding the difference between the two is so important because I think when we were going through the, you know, the tough time of COVID, we were constantly getting bombarded with, you know, the FDA said this, the CDC advisory committee said this, then the CDC commissioner said this. So really, you know, the way that it goes is for vaccines, it's the FDA advisory committee that meets. Then the FDA commissioner signs off on it. Then it goes to the CDC ACIP committee. Then the CDC director signs up, off on it. Then it makes it so. So that, that's the way that it goes. And so um, up until last week, uh, it was being recommended that uh, patients that are 65 and older should get a bivalent booster dose. Okay. And then um, that 65 and older person could request a second bivalent booster at least four months after their first bivalent booster. If you were immunocompromised at whatever age, you would, if you had one bivalent booster, you could request a second bivalent booster within two months. So I found that uh, when they stated that, that we didn't even have enough people that got the first bivalent dose, let alone those asking for a second. However, I do wanna point out 
that's 65 and older who we take care of, right? They had the highest percentage of their first bivalent booster dose. And I attribute that to our very hard work that we did, you know, during COVID. And, you know, my hopes are that that's recognized at the White House and, and other agencies to get us that provider status in our lifetime. So what, what they did with the bivalent booster at that time is st stated that we're gonna make it more simple and more harmonized. And so that's what they did with saying, here's what, the, here's what the recommendation is. And in four months, you could get a second. In two months, if you're immunocompromised, you could get a second uh, in two months. So then we had the FDA Burback call two Fridays ago. And then last week, the CDC ACIP meeting took place over a three-day period of time, talked about COVID vaccines, influenza, pertussis, pneumococcal, they, they gave an update for all the vaccines. So I'm just pointing out that those are very valuable calls to be on and anybody can be on them. You just sign up and you know they send you the link. What is recommended for, um, for the fall will be um, another, it's, it's going to be a monovalent booster and it's the XBB dot one dot five xbb dot one dot five and this is going to cover the circulating variant of xbb and it's it's the most predominant right now so the one that the bivalent boost that we had before you won't get that one and that contained the ancestral strains of the wuhan plus omicron right now this one we don't need that one anymore. Now we're going to get the new one that has the XBB variant. And I think they're still deciding on dosing. So I can't really tell you what that is right now for Pfizer or Moderna, or for that matter, Novavax. All three manufacturers are very busy right now formulating this vaccine. So Deborah, do you anticipate in the fall, you know, our skilled nursing facility or our older adults will be getting the new COVID booster and influenza vaccine. And then do you also think they're going to be adding RSV to that? So they'll be getting all three. Is that what you anticipate? Boy, that's the million dollar question right now. <laughs> um, I did listen. I, I, I will start with RSV. So that was recommended for 60 and older as a shared clinical decision. And whenever they add those three words to any vaccine, and they don't mandate it, I don't know what the uptake of it will be. And right. keeping in mind that that vaccine's probably going to be a one-and-done vaccine. It's not something that you're going to have to get every year. So that was interesting to me. Uh, giving it with other vaccines certainly can be done, but the timing of it will vary so that RSV hits at different times. This year it hit at an unusual time. So they haven't quite told us if it's gonna be available in August or is it gonna be available in November? We don't know the answer to that, but there are two approved RSV vaccines. The cost might be prohibitive in some cases, 
although it should be covered covered under Medicare Part D as in dog, but not Part A. So uh, influenza and COVID certainly as it was last year, given at the same times, uh, not in the same syringe that will not be available for this year. They're thinking next year. And the reason for that, that thought process is that they still have to study whether both vaccines mixed together would A, have this, um, the right amount of immunity, and secondly, adverse effects. Would they increase? Would they stay the same? Would they decrease? So that's not studied enough yet. We'll know more for next year. But you certainly, you know, as most know, that you could give COVID and influenza in the same arm, one inch apart, or a different anatomical location for each. Yeah. And are there any contraindications that you know of with this, with the new COVID booster or the RSV vaccine? Nothing out of the ordinary. Okay. I um, have one. Go ahead, Scott. Well, I was just going to say, I think, too, with the new uh, COVID vaccine, one of the nice things for us that have been giving them for so long is obviously we've been dealing with a lot of multi-dose vials for years and years and years and uh, trying to squeeze those extra doses out of there when we could. But they have I know that they're looking at single-dose vials and single-dose syringes for the new COVID vaccine XBB variant. So that's, I think, rather... A, a time saver, if nothing else, for us when we're giving a lot of those vaccines. So I wanted to point that out too. Yeah, and Scott, um, I do remember the days. It seems like so long ago, but it really wasn't that. You know, it, that was like liquid gold to try to get um, you know the last dose out. Uh, but we are already using single dose vials of the bivalent COVID booster. So the manufacturers heard everybody loud and clear that they need single dose vials. It is a huge time-saving strategy, I think, for for pharmacists, for any facilities that have partnered up and are trying to give as well. I think, you know, it just is a much easier method. Sorry to interrupt, Tamara. I'll let you get back to your question. No, I'm glad you said that because my question was off the vaccine topic. When you were talking about upcoming, you know, priority pathogens and you're talking about the candida auris, what you said that we need to be prepared and have our facilities be prepared. Where can we find information to help us prepare or what do you find most helpful? What sites or what information? Yes, I would utilize the CDC uh, website for that information. They have some great fact sheets for healthcare professionals, for families and caregivers. Um, so th that's where I would start. Um, one thing that's really important about Candida Auris that I learned is that you have to make sure your lab can identify that pathogen. If they can't, they, they need certain, um, like it's called the multi-top MS, it's a mass spectrometry. And if they don't have that, then they might misidentify the CRs into something that it isn't and then miss it and then have the per the resident you know make it sicker. So I would make I would be having a conversation with my lab to see if they can actually test for CRs. And then um you know certainly contact precautions would be in order but there's a new precaution it's um barrier precautions that came out by the CDC that is specifically for multi-drug resistant organisms. And that's where you will have to wear a glove and gown for like activities of daily living, like 
changing the bedding, changing the linen, changing diapers, um, things that you wouldn't think that you need, gowns and gloves. But person-to-person -person transmission is high for CRS and between staff members. It's actually, they found in some cases, staff spreads it to others from person-to-person -person transmission. So I think those are two important things is to um, make sure your lab can identify it. And secondly, to know what the enhanced barrier precautions mean, you know, start to educate about that. Yeah, because with those enhanced barrier precautions, if you had, you know, some sort of, let's say, carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas five years ago, that would still, you would still have to have those enhanced barrier precautions today, right? Even though that was treated? You mean if you had that organism five years ago? Yeah. That carbapenem one? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that, Tamara. I know okay. if you have candida auris, you do have to continually monitor for that to see if there's colonization. So that's something that you need to continue. I'm not sure about the carbapenem one. Okay. I wanted to circle back, Deborah, and come all the way full circle to the first question again and talk a little bit more about some of the barriers that may exist with antibiotic stewardship within some of the facilities that we service. For example, with providers not having buy-in on whatever antibiotic stewardship uh, protocols have been put in place by a facility or the facility not having buy-in. What are some things that you have seen in practice or that you've heard have been really effective in trying to overcome that, that barrier? So I think that um, the number one infection that we see in nursing homes is urinary tract infections. So I think we have to start there. And um, it's very important that you are utilizing the most current guidelines to discuss this topic. And so we know that the um, guidelines for asymptomatic bacteria did come out in 2019, I believe. First update in, in about 10 years. As, as it seems for most infectious disease protocols, it takes about 10 years to get an update. So, um, you know, in, in the, those guidelines, there were some very um, timely topics. Uh, one stating that, you know, unless someone had specific symptoms like increased urgency or frequency, uh, for example, as compared to wondering or restlessness for the reasons that we sometimes see UAs being ordered, um, you know, we need to stop doing that. So that's going to save money for the facility that they're not, you know, sending all those U UAs out. Um, the second um, area uh, that they pointed out was that if someone falls, that should not be a reason to get a UA. And so the example that I use in the groups that I talk to at the facilities, and Scott, I try to have everyone present, right? I From the NHA, like I said, medical director, the CNAs, they're the ones that are telling the LPNs, Mrs. Smith just fell, you better get a UA. I will ask you the question, if you were to trip and fall at home, would you get up and say, I must have a UTI? No, you know you wouldn't. So why are we doing that to our residents, right? But it had to state that in those guidelines that you need to assess for other causes, not because it's a fall. So um, I think that if you educate the staff at the facility and everyone's on the same page, you will have better success. If you leave some people out, like the nurse practitioners, for instance, you're, you're not going to be successful. Um, I, I think that, you know, 
you either make it a mandatory educational opportunity, you record it and have people watch it when they can. Uh, I've tried all of those and a combination of all of the above seems to work. So asymptomatic bacteria, that's like number one. The second one would be Clostridioides difficile. There were two new guidelines, right, that um, came out with Clostridioides. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, in the past I've seen incorrect vancomycin oral orders, but now not so much. You know, it's really improved. I'm, I'm so happy when I see that. And then the third one would be community-acquired pneumonia. Those, those are the most updated guidelines. So I think, you know, you're more successful if you can reference those or give a copy to the medical director, the nurse practitioner, whomever it is that you're having trouble, you know, getting through. And I think once they see that, they're they're more amenable, you know, to your recommendations. Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of really good points. I, for a lot of consultant pharmacists, and uh, probably I'm not speaking anything uh, out of turn here, but I think a lot of consultant pharmacists uh, don't have a lot of relationships with their physicians that are servicing the facilities. And oftentimes that is one of the biggest missing links, right? I, whenever you talked about having that conversation, which is really about us trying to show our value and help to the facility, as well as just uh, help to the resident population that we're servicing, it is about building those those friendships, those relationships in an interdisciplinary team approach. And so I think that it's really viable to, you know, continue to remind ourselves that just making a recommendation for the home, albeit it may be the best recommendation in the world, if we don't have those relationships, those um, uh, interdisciplinary team approaches in place, it may fall short, and that may be leading to some of the frustration that some of the people listening in are are feeling. There was a facility a couple of years ago that we were getting a little bit frustrated because the providers were writing for long durations for uncomplicated UTIs, and the the antimicrobial stewardship, you know, program director and myself were thinking about a project, and I thought, well, maybe we could write a policy capping their duration on an uncomplicated UTI, but allow exemptions if there's good reason. And before we implemented that, I called the the primary provider who had about 80% of the residents there and said, what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. And she loved it. She said, you know, I've been having so much trouble educating my own, you know, nurse practitioners or PAs. And she said, I think that would be really good. And so it was nice to have her buy-in even before we implemented, you know, the new policy. And I think that was helpful in making it a success. And, you know, um, we have to get all, all of their buy-in, but we cannot forget the resident and the resident's family. Because I think um, nurses get beat up about, you know, residents coming to, or families, family, family members coming to them to say, when mom acts like this, she is a UTI it's probably asymptomatic bacteria, right? So we have to start saying to them, you know, we don't really wanna call the doctor because if she gets another antibiotic, it, she could become resistant when she really needs that antibiotic, it won't work. Or here's what could happen if she gets on an antibiotic, she could get, you know, very severe diarrhea that could lead to, you know, that's called C. difficile. You've probably heard about that, uh, or it could, badly interact with other medications that she's on. But you know what you could do while you're here? Why don't you offer mom, you know, her favorite beverage? Make sure she drinks it while you're here. Um, 
we can educate our CNAs to make sure that the water pitcher is filled and it's within arm's length, especially if there's no, you know, um, reason why they can't have the, the fluids or, um, you know, anybody that's going into that room to see that resident, making sure they stay hydrated. Because quite frankly, I think sometimes the lab that we should be calling the provider for is the basic metabolic panel to see if they're dehydrated rather than a UA to see if they have a UTI. Right. And I love how you bring up the family because we've all been there uh, with kids or loved ones where we're advocating for them and we don't want them to be sick or we know something's off. And so it, you can become pushy without reason behind it a lot of times. And oftentimes, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but antimicrobial resistance is not a hot topic that's talked about on the news like we see some of the things talked about. So people's awareness in the public and in the public's eyes is not very high, and they don't really understand why it's such a big deal for there to be uh, these checks and balance systems in place. And so I love how you brought the family in, but educating them in a way that's non-confrontational, that's not saying we don't, it, coming off like we don't care about your loved one, but also we want to try to educate you that we're doing what is most appropriate for your loved one to get them to a better state. I think that's very, very vital to remember. Well, Deborah, we appreciate you being on the show. You are our first guest on the show, so that should be uh, celebrated. Uh, if we had some swag, we'd send you a hat or something. We'll have to work on that. But we have absolutely loved our time with you and appreciate your insight, your knowledge, your ideas that you've brought to the table. And I know all the listener base will as well. So thank you so much for being on our show. It's been my pleasure. Hey, Scott, can I tell you guys just one thing quick I read the other night? Sure. I was reading the Journal of Veterinary Medicine about pigs and what they treat pig wounds with. And do you know what they use? Uh -uh. They use antibiotic ointment. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, another tragic joke. Second <laughs> I had Thanks, to. Deborah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> what a way to end Deborah's time slot with this right there. <laughs> but thanks again, Deborah. You have been incredible and uh, we appreciate you so much. Tamara and I want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of the LTC Pharmacy Podcast. And don't forget to utilize the LTC Pharmacy Podcast at gmail.com email to let us know your thoughts, your feedback, and your questions. And we will try to address those on an upcoming episode. We hope that each of you have an incredible and amazing rest of your day. Bye for now. <laughs>